Well, I wonder if you've ever heard of the phrase, if you know, you know. You've heard of it? Okay, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that says there's some people who know inside knowledge or a private joke, and if you know, then you're part of the inside. If you don't know, then you're excluded. So I'll give you an example. If I said to you right now this afternoon, I love you 3,000. There are going to be some of you, some of you are going to be like, I know what you're talking about. And others of you will have no idea what I'm talking about because if you know, you know. But I'm not going to explain it. Uh, there are whole Facebook groups, aren't there? Operating on this idea of inside knowledge, the biggest group on Facebook, my favorite, is Subtle Asian Traits. It's basically a big group for Asians who know. So I went and found some memes having to do with if you know, you know. See if you know. If you know, you know. Who doesn't get it? Okay, if you don't speak Chinese, you won't get it. See? There you go. How about this one? If you don't play ping pong, you won't know. How about this one? Who, who knows what Horflakes are? They're terrible. I hate them. They're disgusting. Who, likes, who actually likes Horflakes? What is wrong with you people? But if you know, you know. And who hasn't experienced that as an Asian kid? Mark and I sleep over at my friend's house. Your house no bit, ah. Uh. Actually, I need a Singaporean to say that. Jess, can you do that in your best Singaporean accent, please? Really? Yeah. Yes, please. Your house no better. See, there you go. Your house no better. Okay. But again, if you know, you know. Now, so many of uh, our social experiences in the world, groups, friendships, jobs, our identity operate on that inside versus outside element. I mean, think about the different groups or clubs you belong to. Um, think about within a school, a university campus, even a company, the kind of groups that are formed. And really, there are going to be some on the inside, some on the outside. There's going to be some who know stuff, and then everyone else don't. Now, what happens when that kind of attitude, which actually is pretty common in the world, what happens when that comes into church, though? What happens when that comes into the people of God? When within a church, there's going to be some who are right on the inside. You're the insiders. You're in the know. There's going to be others left on the outside. There's some who on the inside are going to feel superior because I know stuff that you don't. I'm involved in, in things that you have no idea about. And then others are made to feel inferior and completely left out. You see what's going to happen to relationships within God's people. Relationships, actually, that are supposed to be about loving and caring for each other equally. What happens when it comes into the church? Well, I mention it because this was the ancient church of Corinth. Corinth was a city in ancient Greece, and its church was messy and divided, which is why we call this series Messy Church. Now, it was a church that actually had a lot going for it. It was very gifted, especially, as we'll find out, in supernatural, spiritual blessings. But it was a church that was really, really immature and very ungodly in the way that it handled these gifts. And it did it with this kind of somewhere on the inside, others on the outside attitude. Now, if Southwest, our church, our congregation at Bankstown is to be a mature and godly church, then we need to pay attention to what's going on here in Corinthians because there's a lot of ways in which 
we are either a lot like them or we're tempted to be like them. So let me pray. And uh, you will need to have your Bibles open because it's quite a long chapter and we'll go through these verses in detail. Let's pray. Father God, help us to engage in this really important chapter, not just out of curiosity for what happened back then in the Corinthian church, but more importantly for what you'll say to us today, what you'll say to us as the body of Christ here at Swake Bankstown, so that we might all, for the glory of Jesus, play our part in this body. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 12 uh, is one of the key chapters in the whole Bible that talks about the idea of spiritual gifts and what it means to use these gifts to play our part in the body of Christ, which is going to be a key metaphor, a key image of the church here. And uh, we're going to go through it. And how I want to do it is I want to point out seven key things. It's on your outlines. So follow as I go through it one by one as we navigate this chapter. First point. All Christians are spiritual. All Christians are spiritual. Now, chapter 12, verse 1 is actually over-translated in almost all of our English translations. Uh, in, in the translation you've got in front of you, whether it's the NIV or another, it's likely to say something like, now concerning spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit. Um, that's not actually the word used there. The word for spiritual gifts, we'll see, comes up in verse 4, and it's an entirely different word to the verse in, word in verse 1, which actually shouldn't be spiritual gifts, but spiritual matters, spiritual things. It's much broader. He's not right now talking about spiritual gifts particularly yet. Now, this actually tells us the context of the letter so far. So let me give you a quick recap, because we actually started 1 Corinthians last year, and we're picking it up again here in chapter 12 this year. So quick recap, uh, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament, written one of the earliest letters, by the Apostle Paul, who was the missionary, pastor, church planter, who founded and pastored that church. Corinth was in ancient Greece. Now, Corinth was one of those cosmopolitan, vibrant cities, kind of center of civilization, heart of culture. So if you think of Corinth, it's probably more New York than it is Washington, D.C., more Melbourne than it is Canberra. Kind of get the vibe, yeah? But because of that, the church was pretty messy. That is, because it was so at the center of culture, the culture around it and the values of the world around us really seeped in and influenced the people within the church, rather than the people of God being like a beacon changing the world outside. It went the other direction. And so the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians really deals with a lot of those problems that comes with that, particularly division and what they thought was great and all those kind of things, wisdom, okay? It's chapters 1 to 6. But then from chapter 7 onwards... Paul is going to direct his attention to issues that they have raised with Paul, probably in a letter, a letter that we don't now have, but Paul's responding to a letter that they wrote him, and he's going to deal with their issues one by one. So you're going to get chapters beginning with this, now concerning or now about, which is actually what we get in chapter 12, right? And so in chapter 7, he'll begin now concerning marriage and singleness. Chapter 7 is all about marriage and singleness. Chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 are about the idea of food that's been sacrificed to pagan idols and whether or not we're allowed to eat them. And then he'll also turn to things about worship in the public assembly, including things like the Lord's Supper and what is proper worship and, and so on. That's chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. By the way, all of these are online um, if you search through our, our sermons last year. But then now, chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual matters, Yeah. Now it makes sense, right? He's going to the next topic. 
And he is wanting to say right at the outset, before he turns his attention more specifically to spiritual gifts, he wants to just say, hey, you know what? When it comes to spiritual things, every Christian is spiritual. That's the first thing he wants to say, which is my first point. Because in the Corinthian church, some thought they were more spiritual than others. They were on the inside, others were on the outside. The more spiritual had certain experiences, had certain blessings, had certain miraculous abilities, and then everyone else was on the outside. But you see, Paul here says, in verses 1 to 3, we won't read it again, he says, no, that's not the case, because every follower of Jesus who genuinely confesses Jesus as Lord has the Holy Spirit, therefore is spiritual. See, when a person follows Jesus as Lord and Savior... The Bible says God actually comes and lives inside of you. God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes and changes you, gives you a new heart, a new beginning with new desires, new affections. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The moment you become a Christian, it's true of every single Christian, from the baby Christian to the decades-old Christian, from the newcomer to the pastor, you are all spiritual now, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can have that. You can actually have God come and give you a new heart. God wants to take up residence in your heart, in your life, by His Holy Spirit, if you follow and trust in Jesus. And you can do that today. If that's you, please come and speak to myself, Pastor Don, Pastor Marshall. But you see, here we have genuine equality, don't we? Every Christian is spirit-filled. Every Christian is spiritual. Okay, that's the first point. Second point, all Christians are charismatic. Now, verse 4, Paul is now going to turn to talk about gifts. And here we have a different word. And it's actually the word that we translate as spiritual gifts. Now, the Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek, is the word charismata. Now, charismata, you'll notice, is made up of that big word, first few characters is charis, and that's a really important part because charis um, means grace. It's where we get the word charity from in English, right? And grace in the Bible is such an important concept, isn't it? It's, it's the whole foundation of the Christian life, that we are actually accepted by God, and it's not because of what we do. We can't earn our way to Jesus. We can't earn our way to heaven. God gives it to us free. Grace means it's undeserved. Grace means you can't earn it. Right? And charismata, therefore, is grace gifts. They're graced gifts. They're gifts that come out of God's grace. Now, in verse 7, it makes very, very clear that every single follower of Jesus has been given at least one grace gift, at least one charismata or one spiritual gift. Therefore, we are all charismatics in the original and true sense of the word. Now, important to note three things about spiritual gifts, though. The, the first one I already kind of mentioned, don't forget the charis part of charismata, okay? This is not something you've earned, that you've deserved. They are gifts from God. So there's no real place in boasting, thinking you're better than others, because you had nothing to do with it, right? God gave it to you. But the second thing is God didn't just give it to you. He gave it to you for the sake of others. It's not for you to keep and feel proud of. It's actually for others' sake. And we'll come to that a bit later on again. And the third thing I think is really important to keep in mind is spiritual gifts does not equal talents. I mean, it may involve your talents, but there's not 
spiritual gifts aren't completely the same as talents. In fact, there's a lot that they're different. Because a talent, when we think about talents, what do you think of? You usually think of something that you are exceptionally good at. And that you have a natural ability to do something and it's generally better than other people. Now, if you think that spiritual gifts equals talents, then you don't feel like you have a spiritual gift unless you have a corresponding talent, yeah? Because you think they're the same. But they're not. They're not. See, I want to suggest to you a spiritual gift, if you take into account the whole chapter and what it says about it, probably a better definition is on the screen for you. Let's get away from talent thinking to think about ability. That is, a spiritual gift is an ability matched with an opportunity to serve others in the church in whatever way you can. That's closer to the idea, I think, of a spiritual gift and how it's different to talent. It's an ability matched with an opportunity to serve others. And it may be something you're talented at, okay? It's not, you know, it doesn't mean it has nothing to do with talents. It may be, but it also may not be. That's the whole point. It may be just something you're okay at. But there is a need and an opportunity and so you can faithfully do it to the best of your ability. All right? Which means that spiritual gifts can come and go. God can give you a gift for a particular period of time because in that particular period of time and the circumstances, it's something that the church needs. But then in another period of time, the church doesn't need it or there's others who can do it. And so in some sense, that's not your spiritual gift at this point. Did you kind of get what I mean? I'll give you an example. Uh, early on in our church's life, so 10 years ago when we started Southwest, um, you could probably say I had a spiritual gift in leading worship with a guitar. Because unfortunately, we just didn't have enough worship leaders. And there I was leading worship with a guitar. Uh, thankfully for you and for everyone else, I don't really need or have that spiritual gift anymore because we've got really competent musicians, way more competent than me in both congregations. And you know what? I'm not only not needed, other people can and are happy to do it and they do it better. And so in some sense, that was a spiritual gift I had earlier on in our church's life, but I don't really need or have any more. Now that's different to talent, right? Because we always think of talent as something that stays with you, whereas a spiritual gift can be circumstantial. It can come, it can go. Even the miraculous gifts can come and go, depending on how God, in His wisdom, determines what the church needs at particular times. Okay, very important. So, third point then, let's move on. The key idea... If you want a summary of this whole chapter in three words, it would be unity in diversity. You got that? Unity in diversity. And we will read again verses 4, 5, and 6 because they're really the key verses that open up the whole chapter. Have a look at verse 4 again. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now you notice it, don't you? What's emphasizing is unity, oneness, but not just bland oneness. It's oneness in the midst of diversity, differences. Yeah, 
all kinds of different gifts, services, workings, but one Spirit, one Lord, one God. Unity and diversity. Now you notice there though, did you notice the Trinity? Did you see it? The Trinity? You might have noticed it when we looked at it in CGs this week. Right? God who was one God, unity, but in three persons, diversity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, here he's mentioned, but it's in reverse order. You've got one Spirit, one Lord, Jesus, and one God, presumably God the Father. Right? It's very Trinitarian. Now, it's appropriate because that's the nature of God. One in the midst of plurality. One in the midst of diversity. And it's such a great model and a background to us in the body of Christ. Unity and diversity. Now, these three elements, as I said, give us a clue to the breakup of the rest of the chapter. That's why these are key verses. So if you'd like to, we're not going to go through the breakup in too much detail. But if you wanted to see it in this way, verses 7 to 11, really uh, are about that idea of the Spirit being the one source that he's already talked about in, in verse 4. And then in verses 12 to 14, the next section, he's going to expand on Jesus, the Lord, being the one head. And that's when you get the whole body of Christ idea. So he is the one of uh, the body, uh, the one head of the one body. And then in verses 15 to 26, while it's still on the body of Christ, you're going to get more emphasis on God who has one purpose in the midst of all that. So it actually does open up the rest of the chapter, verses 4 to 6. Yeah. But again, as I said, unity in diversity. If you want to remember one thing from this passage is that. You know, the same God who made snow, which if you've ever seen a snowstorm, will blanket, dump on a mountain, and it'll be uniformly white, yeah? And yet each snowflake is different. You and I are all different. We have different gifts. We have different parts to play, but we are one and verse 7 reminds us, why are we one? Why is oneness so important? It's because everything is for the common good. For the common good. God has one purpose, and that is for us to serve each other. Now, I'm going to move on to number four then. So point number four, there are more gifts than the ones listed. Now, when it comes to spiritual gifts, you can read lots of books and articles. You can even do online surveys to find your gift, and that's Okay, that can be helpful sometimes. We've done it before as a church. But um, the problem with some of that is it assumes often that the New Testament has lists of gifts. And if you put all the lists together, it's about four or five places that's in, that you've got a full list, an exhaustive list of gifts. And so when you do these surveys, it'll try and match you with one of those gifts. But it assumes that the, the list is, is kind of complete. But actually, most scholars agree that when Paul and the New Testament writers who wrote about gifts, when they put lists in, none of them were saying that this is all there is. In fact, none of them may even have known what a full list might be, even if they did know, right? They didn't put it in. And so 1 Corinthians 12 and the next chapter in 13 mentions probably the most. These two chapters combine the most number of gifts, but it's not a full list. That's important to remember. And there are other parts of the Bible, if you want to note it down, it's Romans 12 has a list, Ephesians 4 has a little list, 1 Peter 4 has a little list, but each of them aren't full lists, and together they're not even a full list. All right, that's important to remember. All the gifts mentioned in the New Testament are not supposed to be all that there is. 
But what we will do now is verses um, 8 to 10 does list a few of them. And we'll look at the what very quickly. What are they? So I can explain what he's talking about. But kind of more importantly, the why. Why, if there are all these other gifts, why does he choose these gifts to mention? Okay, so firstly, the what. Let's go through them one by one. Um, the first gift, or the first 1A and 1B, I like to call them, is the message of wisdom, message of knowledge, verse 8. What's that? Well, that's probably an ability to speak into someone's life in a helpful way. Right? Give them a message, a helpful message into their life. The difference between wisdom and knowledge is perhaps that wisdom is more directive and practical to their situation, whereas knowledge a bit more general and maybe just passing on truths of God as already revealed in the Bible. Okay, Some people are really good with the knowledge. Some people are really good with the wisdom. Some people are good at both. Uh, many of you, especially in teaching leadership positions, um, have these gifts, and we're really thankful for you. Verse 9. Gift of faith. This is not saving faith, the faith you need to become a Christian, but a supernatural faith to believe God for something that is humanly unlikely, unexpected, miraculous, and something that God has not explicitly promised would happen. It's a supernatural gift of faith. The idea is that not everyone has it, and not everyone has it at every time. In the history of Christianity, I could probably think of a few examples, but if you want to follow up, um, throw some couple of names at you. You can look at them up later. George Mueller, who by faith built uh, lots of orphanages in 19th century England, George Mueller. And many of you will know James Hudson Taylor. James Hudson Taylor, the pioneer missionary to China. I think they're examples of people with extraordinary gifts of faith who believed big things and God made happen. The next one, verse 9, gifts of healing. Now, in the original context, probably means supernatural healing, miraculous healing. Now, it's important to note that gifts, plural, gifts of healing, which may imply that not one person with a gift of healing will be able to miraculously heal all kinds of ailments. It may be within a church, even back then, that some would have particular effectiveness in miraculous healing of these ailments, others with others. Okay? Gifts of healing. Verse 10, miraculous powers. Now, these are other miracles. They're not necessarily just miraculous healing because Jesus, we know, didn't just heal. What else did he do? He multiplied food. He walked on water. He stilled the storm. He turned water into wine. I mean, they're pretty you know, huge examples, but there are other miraculous powers. That's the point. Next one is prophecy. Prophecy is lots of debate on this, and we will come back to prophecy in two weeks' time on chapter 14. But uh, prophecy is best understood, I think, as the ability to communicate a message given by God, right? Communicate a message given by God that's tailored to a particular person or group. Prophecy may be to a person. Prophecy in chapter 14 will be particularly to the church or to the assembly, right? But it's a communication of God-given message tailored to a particular person or group. It's so it's different to teaching. Teaching is passing on a revealed body of knowledge, and applying that revealed body of knowledge, generally a little bit more generally. It's not identical to preaching, but I think it may have some overlap. But we'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. That's prophecy. Um, and verse 10 also has distinguishing between spirits. Now, in, because it's tied to prophecy, it's likely to be talking about the ability to evaluate prophecy. Particularly to know whether someone who's supposed to have given a word from God, a prophetic uh, pronouncement, whether it's actually come from God 
or come from the enemy, the evil one, which is possible as well, false prophecy, or somewhere in between. That is, it's not from God. It's actually just from the, own, the, the person's own interpretation. They felt particularly moved to say something, and they may have thought it was from God, but it's not. Distinguishing between prophecies seems to be a gift to be able to really wisely weigh up. Was it from God or not? And then last of all, this is again A and B sort of thing. Uh, speaking in tongues is a gift. Interpreting in tongues, another gift. Um, the ability to speak in tongues is ability to pray or speak in a language a person has never previously learnt. This can be a known human language, an unknown human language, or some think maybe even an angelic language. The gift of interpretation can make it understandable, not just to those hearing, but also we'll find out that the speaker himself or herself who speaks in tongues generally or may not understand what they've said. Okay, and it interprets to them. Okay, now they're the gifts. Just really quickly, I know the breakneck speeds. Feel free to ask me more about it, read more about it. But I'm more interested in the why, right? Why these gifts listed? Why not the others? Why in particularly these gifts that are kind of more the miraculous, kind of showy gifts? You notice that? Because in Romans 12, another gift list, um, he talks about less spectacular gifts, such as encouragement and mercy and generosity, so why these and not the others? Well, probably because, you can guess, Corinthian issue, the, the church, had everything to do with these more spectacular gifts, especially, we think, the gifts of tongues. And it's a little bit like the history of the Pentecostal, the charismatic movement in the 20th century, especially early on. Um, you might know about it. Tongues has been and can be such a dividing issue, an uh, insider versus outsider issue, uh, we feel superior, you feel inferior kind of issue. Uh, not just tongues, though, other miraculous gifts, healing, prophecy, powers, they tend to do that, don't they? Right? Exclude, be exclusive. No church I know of has ever divided over the gifts of administration. And I'm so jealous because you are such a good encourager and I'm not. Like, those gifts generally don't divide churches. It's the kind of showier gifts, isn't it? So I think we've got to see this list less like a checklist of gifts that are available to us and more like a warning so that we would know the kind of gifts that, yeah, they're great because they're from God. But we've got to be really careful because these are particularly the kind of gifts when they're not used well can really divide and damage a church. They did it to Corinth. They've done it in history. They can do it to us. But that's why these gifts in particular are focused here. Okay, got that? Next one. And this is a really important point. Number five. We are all indispensable. Indispensable means you can't do it without. Okay? We're all indispensable members of Christ's body. So you see from verses 12 to the end of the chapter, we get this key idea, this image of body. Not just any body. Christ, King Jesus' body. And it's trying to drum home the idea of unity in diversity again. The key idea, right? Unity in diversity. We are all different, but we're all part of the same body. With the same head, Jesus the Lord. Serving the same purpose. So you see verse 12. Let me read that again. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Skip to verse 27, towards the end there. 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You see, when it comes to spiritual gifts, some 
have more, some have less. Some will have this gift, some will have that gift. But whether you have this or that, whether you have lots of gifts or fewer gifts, in the body, it's important to remember there are no accidents. Because here's a, 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 did you notice this repeated idea or phrase in this chapter? In verse 11, it's there, just as he, God determines. And then in verse 18, just as he wanted them to be. In verse 24, God has put the body together. In verse 28, God has placed and a list of gifts. You see, the point is, this is God's design, God's body. God is the creator, not just of your body, but the body of Christ and each part in it. So don't begrudge others. Don't look down on others. Don't envy others. Because to do that is sort of to wish we had done a better job than God. But whereas God has given all these parts in the body their particular place and role so that the body may function well as one. See, the key is obviously that God has done this to remind us that we all need each other. We all play a part. Every part needs every other. And that's what he really goes on to, really to spell out in verses 15 to 26. He's going to do it by talking about two groups. Or he's going to talk to two groups of people. I'm not going to read those verses again, but just to give you a bit of an idea of how these verses hang together. Verses 15 to 20, he's going to speak to the first group. The first group who feel that they're just not as important. That they feel that they're less gifted. And then he's going to turn it around in the next bit, verses 21 to 26, to speak to those who feel more important because they may have more gifts. Okay, he's going to address both groups. And to the first group, he's going to say, in verses 15 to 20, if you feel less important, don't forget, I need you. Right? You feel less important, don't forget, I need you. To the second group, he's going to say, if you feel more important, don't forget, you need me. Right? You need me. The first group needs to know that well, not everyone can be an eye and a hand, but the body still needs you because no one wants the body to look like this. Mike. <laughs> a giant eye, do they? And the second group needs to know, well, those that you don't think are very important, as important as you, are important to the body. You know, those without the upfront, visible, showier gifts are absolutely necessary, as much as your upfront, showy gifts might be. So, um, I don't know if you know what the picture there of uh, those two things are, but the one on the left, that's the front and back, is the ignition module in most modern cars. And the second one is a simple hose, a radiator hose, in fact. Now, the first one, an ignition model, I don't know much about cars, so I had to Google this one, but the ignition module, if those of you who know, and there's a few of you who do, is a pretty advanced piece of electronics, okay? It's complex. There's lots of things going on there. The other one is a hose. It's pretty basic tech. I would assume we've had hoses for like thousands of years. But you can't operate a car with only an ignition model and no hoses. Neither can you operate a car with only hoses and no ignition model. Whether it's advanced tech or basic tech, all need to work together for your car to run. 
And it's the same with the body of Christ, with the church. See, there are both groups here at Southwest. Some of you here look around and you genuinely feel like, well, I don't know how much I can contribute. Or you might think, yeah, I've got certain abilities and I've done it before, maybe at a former church, but really there's no real need for me here, so I'll just kind of sit back a little. Well, did you know that if God brought you to this church, and this is your church, I'm not talking to visitors here, I'm not talking to those who aren't followers of Jesus, but if you know this is, this is where God has planted you, then there is some part of the body here that is not functioning as well as it could be because you've chosen or you felt it's better not to be involved or it's better to take a back seat. Do you see what I mean? This body can't do without you. We need you. This body needs you. Others here in the other group, right? you're gifted, you serve in lots of different ways, and you're probably quite experienced at serving in this way as well. We need to realize, you need to realize that the body functions best when every member is given an opportunity to exercise their gifts. Um, And I I find, because I'm in this position um, a lot, Whereas if you're really experienced at doing things, especially if you're in leadership, right? I think it's really important for us, to, those who are good at doing things, have done it for a while, that we see it as our role to train and empower new people to do it, to have a go. Now, that's easier said than done. Everyone wants to do training, and, but it's actually frustrating and difficult because it's generally something you're really good at or you're better at and you do it really efficiently. And anytime you have to train someone new, you have to expect a drop in quality and efficiency. And for some people, that's the reason why it's just, I'll just do it myself. But you see, by doing that, you're not actually allowing other members of the body to have a go and perhaps discover their gifts within the body of Christ. In the short term, yes, you might drop quality and efficiency, but always in the long term, the body is going to benefit. So if you're in any sort of, not just leadership, if you've done your role, your particular gift exercise in this church, and you've done it well, look out for noobs. All right? Give them a go. Train them. Empower them to do it. And initially, they're not going to do it as well as you, but you never know. Some of them may end up doing it much better than you, and that should be something that makes you rejoice. And that's really what verse 26 is talking about, right? If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices in it. Wouldn't it be great with a church that does that? We just love seeing each other shine, outshine us. And when one part suffers, really the whole body suffers. Um, my poor wife, Karen, sprained her ankle a couple of months ago. And then she went and saw Jody, her physio. And Jody uh, talked about how Karen's hips and her calves were all out of whack. Right? Because when one part is crippled, other parts get affected. That's how it works in the body. And that's how it works in terms of our gifts as well. Okay, second last point. Number six, it is good to desire greater gifts. Now you'll notice um, Paul ends verse 31, the whole chapter, with this command, or at least his encouragement. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And just before it, in verses 28 to 29, you'll see he lists a number of gifts or the number of types of people God gives to the church. And he actually orders them, right? From apostles up the top, right down to speaking and interpreting tongues at the bottom. And then he says, eagerly desire greater gifts. Presumably, he's talking about desire the gifts on the top of the chain. Now, that is going to seem like a contradiction to everything we've just said, right? 
Like I thought every gift was important. How can a gift be greater? How can a person, how can there be an order even? Now, this will be fleshed out in a couple of weeks' time in chapter 14, but let me give you a preview. Desire greater gifts is a good thing as long as what we mean by greater is not what we define as greater, not what the world defines as greater. But greater here means what is most helpful for the most number of people in a particular church body. You got that? Most helpful for the most number of people in a particular church. It's an entire other person-centered version of greater. And here, really importantly, it may actually be different from church to church of what the greater gifts are. Even different, in our case, from congregation to congregation of what the greater gifts are. Now let me explain what what I mean by that. Um, In verse 27, really interesting. He says, you notice there, you are the body of Christ. Now who is the you? The you, he's talking to the church in Corinth. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say you are a body of Christ. He doesn't even say you are part of the body of Christ, even though the church in Corinth was not the only church in the world. But he says you at Corinth, you, the local church of Corinth, are the body of Christ. And I think that's significant because he's actually saying in some way that we don't quite understand, every local church is meant to be the body of Christ where they are. All right, we are the body of Christ here at 4 p.m. Uh, Bankstown and wider, really, at Sweck. But down the road, there's going to be the uniting church there. And they're the body of Christ too at Bankstown for them. And whether you're a mega church of thousands or a house church of just two families, each one is the body of Christ. So it means that we at Southwest, this body of Christ, there will be gifts that are going to be more needed for us at this time that can benefit others, but it's going to be quite different in another church, in another body. Do you see what I mean? I mean, even from congregation to congregation, there are going to be differences. If you like to think think of Sweck Bankstown as the body of Christ, well, I know at Kingsgrove, they really don't need more people on the music team. But at Bankstown, yeah, it wouldn't hurt, I think, Jason, where are you? To have a few more people involved in that, all right? Um, at SWEC as a whole, we probably don't need many more preachers. Um, we've got a number of pastors, students, and so on. But there's always a need for kids' leaders and kids' helpers, isn't there? In many churches, and I think to, to a certain extent uh, our own here, usually it's easier to fill the um, upfront gifts, harder to find people to do the background stuff. Probably not so much so at Bankstown. I feel like we do that pretty well. There's people filling in lots of ways. But you've got to figure out, it's going to be different, you see, between us and another church, even between us and another congregation. So it's really great if, because you're motivated by this desire to build up the body of Christ here at SWEC, it's great to desire greater gifts. That's the whole point. Desire greater gifts, as long as what you mean by greater is looking outwards to other people, looking outwards to the church rather than... What makes you think is great? The Corinthians likely thought that the greater gifts were things like speaking in tongues and being able to do miraculous stuff. And Paul, you'll notice, puts tongues at the bottom almost actually actually every single time. Every list he has, tongues is right at the bottom. Because he wants to say, as showy and flashy as this is, and we'll see this in a couple of chapters, tongues as compared to other gifts is only going to benefit you much more 
than the whole body of Christ, unless it's interpreted. So maybe as a result of today's sermon, I'm hoping that everyone here feels some sort of conviction to be an active member of the body. And maybe you feel like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I haven't been doing that much lately. I've taken a break from it. It's time for me to step up. So where do I go? What do I do? What do I even look at? What's my spiritual gift? Now, one starting point, and often this is where people go, one starting point is, well, I'm going to start looking at me, right? What are my abilities? How has God made me? And maybe I can then find my spiritual gift and look for an opportunity to use it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to suggest to you, as a, in light of this chapter, the whole chapter, that maybe another starting point can be this. Rather than looking at you, start by looking at the church, the body of Christ you're a part of. Ask the question, what are the needs at SWEC and how can I serve given the needs? And it may even be an area I have zero experience in, but I've got an ability and a desire and a willingness to learn. Now, maybe that after trying, I discover I'm unsuited to do it. And I've got to be humble enough to say, yeah, that's probably not an area I have much ability for. I, you know, I tried the PA thing, but I really don't know how to press buttons very well. Right? And I just can't manage to do all the tech stuff. That's fine. But it may be, and this is so many, so many times the case of, you know, over the last couple of decades as I've been involved in leadership, I've seen so many, especially band members, um, kids ministry leaders, you name it, CG leaders, who started off thinking, I have no idea if I'm going to be any good at this. I think I'm pretty terrible. And they've turned out to be really, really good at it because they've had a go and they've seen a need and they've tried it. All right? Now, if you want to have a um, conversation with Pastor Marshall, myself, or Dom, it's probably the best way to identify what, what kind of needs. What, what, how has God made me? How can we match the two together to serve? All right. My last point is very, very short, and that is there is something even better than gifts. There's actually uh, one more little bit at the end of um, this chapter. And after all of this, you'll see Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way. There is something even more important than gifts when it comes to the body of Christ. And we will look at that next week in chapter 13. So let me pray. And then let's get ready to sing.